that all about? Oh, hello, Rory. Even are you in a car? Yep. <laughs> we said the same thing, exactly the same thing. I'm in my car. Your car. That's a relief yeah. in a way that you're not in someone else's car. <laughs> I am, I'm Is that a new T-shirt as well? Because there's no creases on it. Look, you look, you look smart, Steve. It's fresh smart. out the suit. It's fresh out the suitcase. Is it? Out the suitcase yeah. or out the packet? No, no, no. Just the suitcase. So you've worn it before, before, have you? That's impressive. It looks good. Stephen Pat's. Stephen goes on holiday and only wears new clothes. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah. I'm the opposite. I go on holiday and only wear old clothes so I can throw them away so that there's room for a gift in the who, suitcase on the way who back. Who are you? Who are you, Jack Reacher? Throwing away your clothes? If you ever see, if you ever get a, a photo from, uh, from Hugh on holiday wearing something you've bought him, then you're like, oh, he doesn't <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stephen, where are you? I'm in Devon. You sound excited. Yes. I'm supposed to be in Apulia. In southern yes. Italy this okay. week, so uh, yeah, just outside painting is not exactly the uh, the switcheroo that I was looking for. You could have gone to Puglia. There's no travel restrictions. I know, but the thing that the thing that we were going there for was cancelled. So right. sex festival, or was it? <laughs> Change not everything yes. to sex festival. You can't so yeah, we're it's sex house. festival. It is, it is. We're sex people, Chinch. That is <laughs> we're sex people. Uh, by the way, can you remember we we finished last week uh, on a, a very brief uh, and transient conversation about putting your foot in it and saying something stupid yeah mm. yeah uh, well i wanted to start in an almost mirrored way uh, with an email from chris who i think is chris hill but he just says chris i had to do some detective work to figure out it's chris hill he says good afternoon gents the reason for the email relates to last week's end of pod stories about putting your foot in it i have a friend who will remain nameless who has a pretty spectacular track record of doing stupid things much to the amusement of all who know him i should point out he's not actually stupid just more than capable of producing stupidity mm-hmm. one day whilst delivering an important presentation to senior managers of his company he completely forgot what his colleague's name was rather than admit this he panicked and said i'll just pass you over to my colleague but i can never pronounce his name properly so i'll let him introduce himself I think we all can see where this is going. His mm-hmm. colleague then stood up and said, Hi, I'm Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up with your work from that's, Chris. That's, that's good. That's good. Steve that's extraordinary. <laughs> and so it's also nice to be able to begin the show uh, with a, a very natural piece of laughter, followed by This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith using his own Wi Fi, Andy Hinchcliffe using his own Wi Fi, and Stephen Wyeth using somebody else's Wi Fi while sitting in a car. <laughs> <laughs> so you want me as part of this or not? I can, I can continue with my holiday. I'm taking time out of precious time with my family to speak to you goons. Precious time with your family. You've been with them and nobody else for six months. <laughs> yes, but we're in a different location, so apparently the reset button has been hit. There, there is I no such thing as precious all. time with the family in the post-COVID world. I, I was really impressed by the fact, Steve, you still had a cup of coffee and a... And a was it a pan au chocolat you had for your, your breakfast? So all, all the modern convenience, even though you're in a car... It, it still looks like yes. you're having a decent time of it. Yeah, but to be fair, Chinch, what we can't see is the pile of Toblerones by his feet. Ah, yes. And his bare feet. <laughs> his the, bare feet. The first breakfast of a holiday is usually very <laughs> significant. So, Stephen, perhaps you could, um, in slightly more glamorous terms than Chinch just used, describe your first breakfast of the holiday. It's usually you go to the breakfast buffet in a hotel, you completely overload to the extent that you feel a little bit ill, and you never do it again throughout your stay. The food is, Stephen? The food, 
was a bowl of Jordan's granola and it is being supplemented by a pan of chocolate which comes in an individual packet, which I think we all know is the classy way. No, 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 have, no. Uh, I'm not, no. Fresh, fresh is best, Stephen, not out of a packet. They're, they're okay, but that's not good enough. For you, that it really is not good enough. What, what type of Jordan's granola? Uh, oh, it was the fruit and nut one, Rory. I know it's, mm. I know it's vitally important. Not the, not the one with bananas. Can you get other granolas as well, or is it just Jordans? There's, no, there are, other, there are oh. other granolas, but it should be said oh, that, okay. that Steve and Katie are obviously pushing the boat out, because Jordans is really quite expensive. Is it? Uh, well, clearly they're saving on where they've gone. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that is the food. The football is chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? Ah. Uh, Definitely. Definitely I do. Do I? I think I do. It's yeah. the final week of July, so it's the obvious time for our conclusions from a recently ended Premier League season. This is the slightly delayed third annual Hot Takes and Takeaways episode. Even more lacking in structural integrity and efficient articulation than usual, this is when we just say stuff that has occurred to us over normally nine months. This time, though, more like 11 and a half months. Plus, we will announce the winner of the much-hyped and not at all overcomplicated, SPMPLPL, the set-piece menu, Premier League Predictions League. The trophy that everyone has been fighting for. There is no trophy. Uh, you can get in touch with the podcast, setpiece menu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube as well. We start with the latest from Ewan Haig, and it is significant. Dear Hugh, Rory, Steve, and Chinch, it has finally happened. I have completed the back catalogue as was, and I am delighted to find that SPM continues into the future. Well, I guess SPM 170 is technically the past, but I think you know what I mean. I have loved the pods. Chinch's entertaining soccer stories with all adult detail and libel-worthy content removed. Rory's quite correct rants about the offside law, the obsession with Marks and Spencer's mini-bites, the curious fascination slash bafflement with avocados, the interjections by Ed, Primrose, George, and Rory. Oh, and the occasional insightful commentary about football and Andy Booth. Glad to discover that you're still keeping up the good work, or at least you were doing in March 2020. So having started at SPM 168 and 169 and then going back to one, Ewan is once again where he started, although not quite up to date. And so his emails are continuing. Hello, happy Hugh, sentient Steve, rakish Rory, and amazing Andy. I was listening to SPM 173 while washing dishes, and my nine-year-old daughter, Esther, asked me if I'd reached the present yet. She's been vicariously following the progress of my odyssey to listen to every one of your very fine episodes. I explained to her that I'm on SPM 173, which was in April, soon after when her school closed due to the pandemic. She replied, and I quote, it will be good when you get to now, because then you'll only be able to listen once a week to those four blaring guys. Despite my explanations of the nuances <laughs> of your discussions and deliberations, she was unmoved in her opinion. Perhaps when I do catch up to the present, she and I can enjoy listening to SPM together once a week. I assume you're keeping up the good work. Cheers, Ewan. Could we rename the podcast Four Blaring Guys? That would be something that would uh, at least be mentioned in the workshopping. Yeah. As long as there's not an I in blaring, because we don't want any political affiliations <laughs> at all, do we? Oh, that's true, yeah. That took me a while to get there, Chint. Yeah. That would be a very different type of podcast. I, I sometimes work on a, on a, on a different on a, level yeah. to most yeah. people. Yeah. That gap that uh, was in there, I'm going to leave in, because normally when somebody says something which isn't that, that funny, I take out the gap to make it sound funnier. So we'll just leave that gap in. Then, <laughs> okay, that's more accurate. And now remember, last week, Rich Reardon became our latest Buffalo, providing us with both Rory Dillap backstory and a beautifully constructed conversation involving a lot of chinch and even more 1980s hit songs. Well, another email has arrived from Rich, firstly revealing 
that a group of buffalo is called an obstinacy? Uh, mm. It's a question that we posed last week, and it's mm. a rather attractive collective term for buffalo, an obstinacy of buffalo. But he also writes to make two points. The first is this. Yes, Chinch, we know Ewoks aren't real, but if they were, having helped defeat the Empire and destroy the second Death Star, sorting out the poor man's Tony Duigo would be no bother for them at all. Seriously, how big a part did the Ewoks play in, in overcoming the evil? Re seriously, they, they didn't, did they? Like Jar Jar Binks, a terrible characters, I feel. 30 to 40% in terms of what they contributed to the Return of the Jedi efforts to overthrow the Empire, but 70 to 80% in terms of the soft toy market that came as a result yeah, exactly. for what, Mattel. What were, they, what were they good at, Ewoks? To put them in, in the context of an actually good film rather than a dreadful nerdy one. Careful where you're going with this, Rory. Careful. Do they not occupy the same role as like Slimer in Ghostbusters, where they're kind of, they're almost like the comic relief. They don't actually have a point in the plot, the Ewoks. Again, it's, it's, it's haven't marketing. seen these films. It is, it's marketing, it is. It's marketing yeah. and buy a lovely cuddly Ewok, although it plays no part in the film yeah. at all. They are pointless. You could have just had empty I've, space there I've and it would have played a bigger role. I've recently re-watched Ghostbusters, which I can tell you does not stand up well against the test of time. And Slimer is only right. in it briefly twice. I'm, right, I'm <laughs> leaving. Bye. <laughs> Doesn't stand up well against the test of time. It's Ghostbusters. It's the eternal story. Mm. It's the basic story. The same plot that Shakespeare used for all of his dreadful plays. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. Group of men well, bond together, fight ghosts. It's King Lear. I think, I, think, I think King Lear does that pretty much solo. He doesn't have a lot of help, and that is no, essentially his, the point. He's got his mates for the, <laughs> for, the, for the ghost fighting bit. He's got his Albanese, his Gloucesters of yeah. the world. Yeah. Rich's second point is this. There I was on Tuesday, July the 21st, mucking around on Twitter like any good parents, when I saw that SPM was out <laughs> a day early. Brilliant, I thought. Then I was immediately interrupted by my phone ringing. To cut a long story short, after a conversation with my boss, I have now moved from the category marked furloughed to the one marked redundant. Some conversations with now ex-colleagues, much wailing and gnashing of teeth, etc., and quite a few more beers later, I remembered that SPM was indeed available. And through my drunken haze, there was Chinch reading Reacher Style, the nonsense that I'd emailed to you. It's nice to know that when I was kicked in the nads, SPM were there to help soften the blow. Cheers, fellas. If you know of anyone in the Greater Manchester or Merseyside areas looking for a tubby youth worker in the mid-40s, give me a shout. Best regards, Rich Reardon, who is a proud buffalo, he says in Bootle. And Rich, we wish you well in that job search. I'm not entirely sure that on every occasion you need us, we will be there. But we're glad that we were on that particular occasion. Depending how tall he is, he could always play an Ewok. Next to a couple of emails relating to last week's show about our growing obsession with records. Michael Zakaim is in Brooklyn. I hope I have pronounced your name correctly, Michael. He says this. Dear Hugh, Rory, Stephen and Andy, although I completely agree that we are obsessed with goatism when it comes to player assessments, I think that being overly critical of a team's accomplishments in the course of a season is due to something entirely different. Liverpool's season might seem underwhelming because we can't say with certainty that they were the best team this season. True, they won the Premier League, but not the other competition in which they were involved. When you have one competition and one champion, you can have closure. But when you have so many teams competing in multiple competitions simultaneously, the lines get blurred. Last year, Manchester City were English champions, Liverpool European champions. This year, it could be the other way around. Wigan won the FA Cup in the same season they were relegated. Chelsea were crowned European champions while finishing sixth domestically behind Newcastle. When you have teams competing in several competitions simultaneously, you rarely find out who the best team is. Other sports don't really have this problem. The New York Yankees aren't playing against the Boston 
Boston Red Sox on Sunday, then against the Tokyo Yakult Swallows in some sort of international tournament on Tuesday, and then against Binghamton Rumble Ponies. Yes, that is the name of a real double-A baseball team in a domestic cup competition the following Saturday. They only play against their fellow MLB teams, and if they end up winning, they get to call themselves world champions because mm, that is the they? American way. Do they though? Yes, do they? And for the most part, everyone acknowledges that they were the best team that year because they won the one competition in which they participated. In football, if you want to be regarded as the best team of the season, then you have to win a treble or at least a domestic league and a Champions League double. If you really want this problem to go away, says Michael, first and foremost, you get rid of the Carabao Cup, Europa League and Community Shield and never speak of them again. Then you have the Champions League immediately following the domestic league where the actual champions play each other to earn the right to be European champions. You can keep the domestic cup competitions, but only one. So you have a cute little trophy to give to a smaller team because they tried really hard. This way, less talented footballers can tell people they won an FA Cup medal in 1995 and ride that one very insignificant achievement, plus seven England caps, throughout their broadcasting careers. Love the podcast, says Michael, and Rory's newsletter too. So initially, my instinct there was to disagree completely because I think the the test is... It's widely accepted the best team in the country wins the league. That's how that works. That's the point of a league. It's why it's why I personally would say the league system is better than the American kind of playoff-focused system. I think you get a truer reflection of, of a team's consistency over the span of, of a year. They play everybody twice, home and away, and the team with the most points wins. That, that works. But he has got a point, you know, that, that the presence of the multiple competitions is what lends confusion to that to that conversation because you could last year dispute who had the better season city winning the four domestic trophies three and a half or liverpool winning the champions league which is which is the kind of recognized as the crown jewel of all competitions and i think you can make pretty cogent cases this isn't a national radio station i don't have to check myself constantly to make sure i'm not misunderstood by people who want to misunderstand because we've got an intelligent audience you can make a pretty cogent case either way that City in, in 2019 or in Liverpool in 2019, that each one had the better season. I'd probably go for City, to be perfectly honest, but there's an argument either way. And that the confusion does come in because there are different ways of gauging it. I don't agree that you have to win a treble to be considered the, truly the best team. I think that's too high a bar because there's, the cups are designed almost to have a, an element of random chance about them. Um, but he's right that if you wanted, if you wanted closure, then you would streamline things and make that only be one competition. Love the idea of a Champions League that follows the domestic season immediately. I think that'd be great. Um, but at the same time, does football want closure? Is it not better to have that conversation? And also, baseball sounds much better where the Yankees are playing the Tokyo Yakult Swallows in an international competition. I bet they could sell the TV rights for loads of money. Can I just take issue with the fact that if we were to ditch the Community Shield, half of my glittering trophy hall would be lost. So let's keep the Community Shield, please. David van der Geer writes this, and I hope, hope that I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Dear Hugh, Steve, Rory, and Andy, thank you for last Wednesday's wonderful episode on our collective obsession with records. Surely the greatest episode of all time, he says, until the next one. All of those things are correct, David. Uh, one thought I kept coming back to whilst listening to this episode is the effect of sports simulation computer games on our expectations. With games like Football Manager and FIFA or Pro Evolution Soccer becoming increasingly more detailed and realistic, the lines between fantasy and reality start to be blurred. The realism that these games provide leads gamers to have a full sense of knowledge and expertise that we use to quickly judge players, managers and teams for the way they perform 
in real life. It becomes easier to dismiss the real life careers of your Canes, your Roonies and your Greenwoods. When in their virtual careers, you have seen them win multiple Champions League titles. They have captained England to a World Cup victory as well. The same applies to team performances. Records become less impressive when you can personally break them on a daily basis in video game form. I'm not implying anyone would actually confuse video games for reality, but the realistic experience and the little shots of dopamine that video game achievements provide can slightly desensitize you to the real thing. For example, playing professional football for 15 plus years, featuring in over 300 Premier League matches, getting seven England caps and single-handedly leading your team to FA Cup glory would be quite an exceptional career for anyone and it should be celebrated as such. But somehow it feels slightly underwhelming when compared to the legendary English left-back with the same name whose pinpoint crosses have just propelled my team into the Champions League mm. for next season. Once again, thank you for the amazing podcast. Surely there is goat potential in SPM, but can you really do it on a cold rainy night in Stoke? Kind regards from David. We are proving that we can do it on a quite sunny day in Devon. Does that help? I'd like to stress I've been to many, many terrible games of football on a cold, rainy midweek night on Stoke and have delivered every single time. True. The, I, I, I think computer games, we talked about this before, haven't we? The, mm. the, the effect yes. that computer games have, have on kind of our perception of football. It's definitely true. I don't know. I know what he means about it desensitising people. But I think, and it's possibly a factor. In, in a certain demographic I'm not sure I think it's more deep rooted than that but it's, it's yeah the, the general subject is the general thrust of his argument is correct so would, would my virtual career clearly it would it's not, wouldn't be hard would it would be much better than my actual career is that what we're saying here well potentially it could be I think it's I think it's it's also what the main the main way that that computer games particularly football manager have influenced the way we think about football, I think is, is the idea of rating people out of 10 or 20, that, that you, you feel as though there is a kind of objective measure of people's abilities. And it's, it doesn't quite reflect how fluid things can be that, you know, a player who looks like a 10 out of 20 at one team can go on to be an 18 out of 20 at another. That, the reverse is true of Chinch. Um, no, the... no, 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 no. I, I, I follow that trend, don't I? I know I, I, you know, maybe seven to a nine. Yeah, know, really, yeah. a mild really increase. Yeah. 18. No part of my game was 18 out of 20, was it? Well, yeah, except from, from getting injured. I was excellent at getting injured and getting stretched off. No, did I get No, I was never. I take pride in that. I was never stretched off. I always walked off dragging my broken leg or knee behind me. I, I took great pride. Don't stretch me off. Let me make my own way to the operating theater. Like a euthanized mule dragging. Yes, that's it. That's it. Yes. And it is interesting, though, that Chinch's career, that's the other thing, is, is, that, is the lack of perspective of, of how good all footballers, all professional footballers are. I think that's something we, we really lose sight of, really willingly. And, and I, I guess you have to, to an extent, because otherwise, what would be the point? You'd just be like, all these people are amazing. Aren't they amazing at everything all of the time? But Chinch's career, which is an incredible career to, for anyone mm, to have, mm, mm, is mm. will be seen as like a sort of. And I don't. This isn't a joke, Chinch. But a lot of people will be like, "Well, he's an, you know he was an average Premier League left back." And you think, "Well, well, was he? Was he really an average anything to play three hundred times in the Premier League?" No, mm, no, he no, wasn't no, an average anything. Far no. from average. It's the Wayne Rooney career, and people criticising. I find that amazing. It's not my career. I should be rightly criticised, and even Primrose criticised. She feels I should have done more. But anyway, the thing is, Wayne Rooney's career is astonishing, isn't it? Yet we're still kind of, or a lot of people are, I'm certainly not. Wayne Rooney, well, yeah, maybe he could have been better. How could he have been? How could he have been any better? Because sometimes it is what you're working with. Can he have done, as an individual, more than he did? I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I agree completely. I think, I think the, the idea that Rooney kind of didn't fulfil his potential is, is completely insane. 
I just think Chinch's career has been re-energised by Leighton Baines's retirement. Look at the adulation Baines has received for not winning an FA Cup with Everton. Ah. Chinch, I think you, you should... Re- your, your place in the pantheon of great Premier League left-backs has been enhanced by what we've seen over the last few days. Oh, because I was quite sorry about Leighton Baines's retirement, but now I should be seeing it. I should be sending him a big cake saying, thanks for making me look even better, Leighton. I don't know him, but I'll, I'll say late. No one call him exactly. Baines because that's ridiculous. But Mr. Baines, then go with that. Mr. Baines. I think David's point about, particularly about Mason Greenwood, which is the obviously the genesis of your column on this issue, uh, Rory, is the fact that you you will compare because time moves a lot quicker in video games. You will compare a person's potential with the career that they have in your computer ah, okay. with what then yeah. happens in real life because obviously it takes a lot less time for it to happen in the video game you you form an instinctive reaction to how you feel about that player based on what happens in the video game in sped up time yes so that, that makes sense reflect on the on yeah the player's that makes sense Finally, to an email from John Manasso. Gentlemen, I write to you somewhat inspired by the email read during last week's pod by fellow Decatur, Georgia resident, and that is how you pronounce it apparently, Doug Wood, but mostly inspired by Chinch's story about how Howard Kendall would wear a Speedo on the coach. And it brought to mind a myriad of possibilities regarding managers most likely to. Chinch's story about the stench emanating from his former manager on the team coach proved far too vivid, both visually and in the olfactory sense. The image, nonetheless, inspired my creative juices to flow, and I considered the possible permutations of this event using the current Premier League managers in a manager's most likely to special. Manager most likely not to wear a Speedo on the coach, Carlo Ancelotti. Manager most likely to think he looks best in a Speedo, Brendan Rodgers. Manager most likely to look best wearing a Speedo, Mikel Arteta. Mm. 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 My wife would agree with that. Every how, time would, Rod, how would Mikel Arteta manage to wear a polo neck while simultaneously wearing a Speedo? <laughs> uh, Chinch, did Howard ever wear anything on top or was it always just the Speedos? It was, they weren't Speedos. They, they were these, I told you, there was these kind of, they were called slips. You basically, they were like undercrackers, underpants that you wore for matches. So they weren't the, because I never wear underpants. I always go commando, always have my whole life. But anyway, so I had to wear them for matches. Apparently it was a legal requirement just in case, you know, something happened and things flopped out. You no, see no, that. It, no, it wasn't. It, you it was. Were, you were legally required to wear pants. I, I'm sure, I'm, I'm convinced, it might only be me thinking this, that players... I don't know whether it's true today, are legally obliged to wear a pair of underpants under their shorts, just in oh case. My God. I don't know. I don't know. I might be wrong. Maybe they're, uh, maybe they're sewn into the shorts these days, so really you're not having to put another pair on. But Howard didn't wear Speedo swimming trunks. They were these ones we used to wear for matches, which were which was again slightly worrying, because you didn't, you didn't have your own pair that had a number on, so you wore the same. They could have been, okay, they were washed. I hope they were washed. I could have been wearing, you know, Ray Atterveld's undercrackers from his previous game. That's a Oh, this is, a, oh my God, this is awful thought. Oh, this is awful. But that, that's what Howard wore, these ones we used to wear for matches. So they're like a big nappy. They were quite white and big. Yeah, they, they were roomy. Good job, because I had to wear them. You know, there's somebody who's got a detail to check the studs on a player's boots and make sure they've not got any jewellery on. Well, they've had a specific requirement when they were covering games that Chinch was involved in to, to be sure that he was fulfilling his legal, legal obligation to wear underpants for the day. It, it might not. I, I just think for health and hygiene, it's short. I, I don't know. Because, I, again, I, I, I go commando, but I always wore undercrackers for matches. So are players obliged to wear undergarments in, in hot soccer? I don't know. We can find out. 
<laughs> the fact that it's hot might require it even more. Mm. Um, finally, on this manager's most likely to, and we'll keep with the speedo thing just for the purposes of completing this, from John Manasso. Manager most likely to wear a speedo at Muscle Beach, Slaven Bilic. Mm. Mm. <laughs> He wouldn't, he wouldn't be doing the weights. I think he'd be walking past, wouldn't he, in a cool kind of fashion. Oh, yeah. He'd have his hands on his hips and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, you'd see, yeah. Oh, you'd see, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't see any guns. You'd, um, you'd see the tackle. Uh, correspondence <laughs> of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. So, here are some bare facts, and they do not relate at all to animals encountered while listening to the podcast on a run through the forests of North Carolina. Liverpool won the Premier League. Manchester City, Manchester United and Chelsea will play alongside them in the Champions League. Leicester and Spurs are in the Europa League while Norwich, Watford and Bournemouth go down. Those are the things of most consequence to almost everybody. However, here at Set Piece Money, we like to class ourselves as being part of that almost. Because at the end of each Premier League season, we like to draw our own conclusions. And these will be of very little consequence to almost everybody. But we plough on regardless because what would the football world be? without our slightly jumbled, even less thought through conclusions. So at a not at all traditional time of late July, we present to you the third annual SPM Hot Takes and Takeaways episode. Quite a long season, wasn't it? Do you remember anything that happened before March? Do you know, I, I, I did, um, I was at Leicester on the final day and wrote a piece about kind of, the, just trying to tie in, tie in the loose ends together of, of the season. And it struck me as, annoying when i realized as i was sat on the m1 on the way back home that i i could have done it in a much better way and the way to do it was all those things that happened in like november do you remember when tammy abraham was throwing loads of goals no i do i do didn't he get like 15 or 16 or something like that in the end i think he ended up with with a, a, a salutary total of 15 or 16 but he got like 10 in the first few weeks and it was he was the story of the start of the season, Tammy Abraham, and he was he was excellent. And it was kind of right, what almost why have Chelsea been sitting on this guy? And that feels like it was about fifteen years ago. <laughs> I mean, that that cannot possibly have happened this season at Tammy Abraham. Do you remember when Watford appointed and sacked Tite Sanchez Flores? <laughs> that, that was this season, and also three seasons previously. <laughs> But the like Javi Gracia going Javi Gracia went in two weeks, didn't he? Went in the first two weeks. That was this season. I mean, is it like the? I I I I think as we've probably previously discussed, I don't like buying into this idea that there's some that the end of the season is in some way detached to the start of the season or the first six months. It is all the same season. It's all the same league. We just have to accept that you know the world changed in the middle of it, and it's it's to the Premier League's credit and the club's credit that they got through the end of it. Especially if you look at the states and how much how much trouble they're all having. They're having in all most of the major leagues with actually playing sport. Um, all the European leagues that played deserve credit for kind of being able to do it in the age of the pandemic. But it is extraordinary to look back and think all this stuff that feels like it's part of ancient history happened this season. It's I heard it on match the day that I I think Abraham. In one of the, one of Chelsea's last last few games, it was sort of Abraham. That's his sixteenth of the season or something. You think, well, is it? He's not played for. He's not played since January, basically. Was the battle yet, of Thermopylae this season, or was that the battle back of, in time? It seems the, like it was, though. The battle of Thermopylae happened between <laughs> the the um the fifth and sixth rounds of the Champions League. <laughs> 
that, that was also just before the Battle of Monopoly, which is essentially what everybody did for three months during lockdown. So that, those two things are of great significance. But do you remember at the beginning of the season, um, uh, one of our major concerns was about all the rule changes, and we were really tearing our hair out about really how much it mattered that goalkeepers would be able to take goal kicks to players within the, uh, their own that, area. That, oh, yeah. that was never the season. That was at the beginning oh, yeah. of this season that that rule was... Uh, was but, I mean, VAR's the other one. Like, it, it does not feel... I had to ask someone the other day whether this was the first, second or third <laughs> season since they introduced VAR. Because I genu- genuinely couldn't remember. It feels like VAR has been with us. Not just because the discussion around it is intensely boring, but it does feel like it's been with us for essentially forever. That, like, the Victorians were using VAR, whereas... It turns That's out where the Battle it, of Thermopylae went that way. If they had VAR, I thought they did have VAR. Maybe it was just Stuart Atwell had got it wrong. Well, the fella, the fella who's the problem, the fella who snuck round the back. That is, oh, he, he was offside. Clearly, at it, least it wasn't spotted. No one's back foot was playing him on. Absolutely no way. You've got to focus on the flanks, everybody. Yeah, I think VAR has been around for about four decades. It's just English football keeps re-implementing it as though it's the first time yeah. they've ever used it. Mm. So it constantly feels fresh to us, which I think is nice. Was VAR the the, the most significant part of? this season even um taking into account the lockdown and i'm not talking about obviously the lockdown was significant to everything that happened off off the field but on the field is var the single most significant development to what we saw and this is probably an opportunity for steven to um to 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 get something off his chest well it's certainly demonstrated hasn't it that in terms of a hot takeaway from the season how badly wrong we collectively could be about the benefits that VAR would bring to the Premier League because we didn't have that foresight that although we'd experienced it elsewhere and seen the difference it could make in terms of improving things, that for some reason it was decided that we would not learn the lessons from mistakes that had been made in places where they'd tried it out before us and instead would completely rewrite the rule book on it and make all sorts of more catastrophic errors in terms of trying to implement new technology to improve the outcome of games. Because what we should have seen this season was something relatively serenely introduced to the game that most people, apart from absolute Luddites, would have been satisfied and had a positive impact. And now here we are at the end of the campaign, keeping our fingers crossed that the six-week window between seasons is going to be long enough for them to sweep away under the, under the carpet all the mistakes and misplaced guidance that was implemented and actually give us in September something that is fit for purpose. That's interesting because has VAR actually benefited or at least the kind of the, the inability of the Premier League to perhaps use VAR in the most efficient way or learn from those who have used it efficiently in the past? Has the lockdown and the hiatus and the delay to the last part of the season helped take our minds off that relative shambles because there is a sense isn't there or at least there would have been in March that come the end of this season VAR needs to be looked at to such an extent that the off-season would be focusing on what changes would be made so that it would be better implemented for next season but is Steve right do we have enough time to actually go through that process and improve it enough so that it is to the kind of standard that I think we all want? Have we seen an improvement though since since football's come back have we had the issues that we had up to March have we, apart from the goal, the, the Sheffield United goal that wasn't given, but that was down to Hawkeye possibly as well. So that was clearly something that 
Um, VAR should have taken an involvement in, but for some reason didn't. So again, there's probably that. Has there been too many in in the post-lockdown games to say, well, actually, yeah, we're still in the same, <clears throat> still in the same boat. We've not learned from the three months off, or VAR has not developed in the three, because that's longer than you would get in the summer to maybe put things right. So surely they must have looked at the process, what they got right and wrong, and tried to improve it for for June. But maybe we haven't had the big incidents that we we had up up to March, so we've not been able to really test it out properly. But one of the things that VAR has again benefited from, Chinch, and you've been to more behind-closed-doors games than, than mm. any of us, is the fact that the fans inside the stadium, who for a long time were the ones complaining most frequently about VAR, because not necessarily just the decision, but the way that it was communicated, the length of yeah. time it took, yeah. and how those fans in the stadium were most in the dark about that process. So if there are no fans in the stadium complaining about that, VAR is going to necessarily get a little bit of an easier ride because we're all watching on television and we're all at least being able to see the process and being talked about the process via the likes of Andy Hinchcliffe. I, I do think that is true, but I was about to say that I, all the games that I did, the Premier League games that I covered um, post-lockdown, I, I can't remember any single instance where VAR overturned an on-field decision. All the games seemed to run so smoothly apart again from that Sheffield United game, which was again down to Hawkeye, but VAR should have played a part. So apart from that first game, all the others seemed to run fairly. Either there weren't incidents the VAR had to get involved in, but there was nothing overturned. No referee gave a penalty that was overturned in any of the games that I covered. So it's only with you mentioning that about fans and not having fans in the stadium that it will make life easier for VAR and the referees. I do agree with that. But it was weird. Yeah, all the games I've, I've covered, everything has run pretty smoothly. I, I just think that our expectations were lowered to the point that we, we knew what we were getting when football restarted. So we weren't perhaps as angry about clear and obvious things that weren't being overturned with the benefit of VAR. I certainly had one in the final game of the season, Burnley Brighton, an obvious penalty, wasn't given on the field, should have been corrected by the video assistant referee and wasn't. Those things were still happening and we were still obviously getting those marginal offside calls that infuriate people. I think we would accept the marginal offside calls thing if we saw decisions being corrected in other areas of the game. Mm. And because they've not been those line calls, those linear decisions that we just have to understand are going to go one way or the other 100%, until, until other decisions elsewhere are being corrected as they should be, that will continue to be a problem. Once we are seeing it used more consistently, we will get you, because definitely you've seen it elsewhere in other leagues, you don't have that issue with offsides. People just shrug their shoulders and get on with it. In part of the problem was the messaging, wasn't it? Because so much focus was given to the idea that it was, it was for correcting clear and obvious errors. That was the way kind of the public at large consumed it. Understandably, it's not, it's not, anybody, it's not the fans' fault, but the fans thought, right, this is a thing for, for overturning clear and obvious mistakes. But what they really meant was clear and obvious mistakes, it's set for offside, which is a factual matter. So, so that, will, that will be as you know, in granular detail if we need it to be. And I think that was what created that frustration where you ended up with, with fans looking at this thing as the lines were drawn on the pitch and thinking, well, this isn't clear and obvious, so what, what is this doing? And that, I think, was the root of the issue. So I wonder whether part of the way to improve its use might just be to improve the messaging a little bit, to improve the clarity that people have on how we're meant to be using it. Because a lot of the things that VAR has done, VAR, the, all these tables of you know, the lead table without VAR, and you think, well, what you're, what you're basically saying there is the lead table without the rules being implemented correctly. That's, that's what you actually mean. 
and why would you publish that? Is you know, here's a lead table if everybody on the pitch had a knife. It doesn't kind of it doesn't really make any sense. But the that that's a fault of the way that it was introduced and the way it was it's been explained to people. The problem is I'm not sure I don't know whether they can get it back. I don't know whether there will ever be faith. I think because the first season's been so bad, I'm not sure there will ever be faith in VAR. Yeah, one thing that we didn't get our heads around during the course of lockdown, and I hope that at some point that does happen over the course of the next few weeks, is understanding exactly what Rory has just said there, that, that VAR is responsible only for implementing the rules. It is not to blame mm. for incorrect decisions. You can blame the people involved in making those decisions, but it's not the technology's fault any more than it is a speed camera's fault that you've been caught breaking the speed limit. So get, we need to get our collective heads around that. We also need to get our collective heads around the fact that you don't go to VAR and we don't have this ridiculous thing, which we are still hearing saying, I can't believe VAR aren't looking at that. It's like saying, I can't believe the referee isn't refereeing that. They're always <laughs> looking at it. Mm. Stop saying it. It's basically what they're there to do. I, yeah. can, I can hear Stephen's fury from Devon. <laughs> and just to back up Steve's point about VAR just applying the rules and they're, they're not making up their own rules. I, I, typical of me, I forgot the Sheffield United Tottenham game where Harry Kane scored and uh, Lucas Moura kind of fell over and the ball brushed his arm. And as we know by the laws, if the attacker touches an arm, either he scores or it, it creates a goal, it's going to be chalked off. And there's that confused Mourinho and Harry Kane all seem to be confused about why the goal was chalked off. But the, the rules are the rules. And I had to actually say in the second half, look, you can't berate the officials for, and, or VAR for actually applying the laws. If the law's wrong, change the law. But don't berate the officials for applying it. It was really unfair and unjust and all those things. But the law is what it is. And that's what VAR and the officials were, were, were sticking to. Actually, the on-field referee didn't see it. VAR overturned it, rightly so. And everyone was, was well, certain people were criticising. I was thinking, you know what? Change the law. You can't have a go at VAR for this. That was one instance where they did get it right. But even when they got it right and wholly correct, people were then saying, oh, that, you know, within the spirit of the game, that's wrong. But they're not there for the spirit of the game. They're there for the laws of the game. But that's, that, that's been something I think that's been really instructive across this season that's lasted 10 years. There's always been a tension between what we want from referees, like whether we want consistency or common sense. People, people say, oh, we just want referees to be consistent. And then they say, well, we just want referees to have common sense. And you think, well, th those two things are not the same. That is not, you can't have the consistent application of common sense because people's definitions of common sense are different and common sense applies differently in different contexts. And it's the same, it's the same to an extent with VAR that, the defence that certain things are not in the spirit of the game, I think is legitimate. But you then need, now that you have the technology to, to enforce the rules to, like a, to a granular level, you then need to, re, to redraw the rules to reflect what you actually want the rules to say. Because ultimately, and I, we've definitely made this point before, ultimately this is not, like the, the, the laws of football, people are always the laws, it's not the rules, it's the laws of the game. But they're not like laws that were passed down to Moses. They're not, they don't stand up in a court of law. <laughs> they're just the rules of a game that we play. And you can change them if you want. They, if, and you should change them if to the vast majority of the people watching that sport, they no longer seem legitimate. And I would say that those, that those technical offsides where, you know, there was a couple on the final day where a foot is, is or half a foot is planted just ahead of a defender's, a defender's hip. I would say that to the vast majority of, the, of people watching football, that does not feel like offside. That's not what we were brought up to think of as being offside. And it's not what kind of most of us imagine to be offside. 
So yeah, I think it's offside, it's offside though, Rory, isn't it? It, it is offside it according is. to the rules as they're currently written. You, yes. could, you could rewrite the rules okay. and say, okay. and reflect the fact, look, all right, we've, we've tried this. We can now judge this, you know, to the, to the, you know, to the nth degree. And it does not seem to be the case that the general public, the general viewing public, believes that to be offside. So we are going to change the offside law to, to reflect that. But the problem is that people would then complain about that. So mm -hmm. that there is a lot of these decisions are always going to be subjective. A lot of them are always going to be really, really narrow. There is always going to be a grey area. And the problem with VAR is that we can now see the grey area and how much of it is a grey area. And we don't like that. To just disagree with Rory, which I'm not one to do on a couple of things. I, I just think with offside, the problem is, is obviously the, the teams that score the most goals are the ones more likely to have goals ruled out for narrow offside decisions just by the law of averages. So they become the focus. But you do have to think of the smaller teams in that regard, that if they were beaten by a goal that's proved to be offside, be unfair on them. So you can't just focus on saying, oh, well, Harry Kane should have had an extra four goals this season if it were for you know, a more common sense application of the offside rules, because that is to do a disservice to the teams that might have salvaged a point from a game against Tottenham with the rule being correctly implemented. The other thing is I do think you can have technology and common sense if you simplify the laws, because having technology now enables us to give officials that second look at something so they're not having to make a snap decision so that when it comes to something like handball, you can completely simplify the handball law and say, is there anything the player could have done to stop the ball striking their arm? So to use the Lucas Mora example that Chinch has just done, you'd look at that on the video and go, there's absolutely nothing he could have done in that situation. So that is not handball. However, if he'd been falling with his arm out in front of him or a long way away from the side of his body, then you could say, well, sorry, he's got to take some of the responsibility for the ball striking his arm and he's banged to rights. So actually, I think I do see the logic in saying technology would prevent us from having uh, a, a common sense application. But I actually think other way around because you're giving people a second look at something that they wouldn't in the past have had. Is, is it the problem as well, though, because we talk about grey areas here, if we do adapt the laws, the rules to, to kind of be fairer, more, more just. Does another grey area come along? So we'll say, well, if we do this, that means, well, something like that will, will never happen again. I guarantee something will come along. And then people, again, it's objective. And if you're asking officials to make the decisions, there should be best place to make the decisions. Again, do, does that fall into the category of, of the new law? There's always, there's always something that comes along in a grey area that will come along to kind of challenge the change. So I don't know whether we're ever going to have perfect offside laws or perfect handball laws because there will always be a grey area come along which will, which will challenge that. And we thought, well, I never thought that would happen. But then it, it will do. I think we've seen it this season. So if VAR has potentially benefited in terms of the anti-VAR narrative that was kind of there from the beginning of the season and then boiling and boiling and boiling until the lockdown, if it has benefited from the lockdown and then subsequently not having fans in the stadium, because dissent is much easier... Uh, much more easily spread amongst a group of people sat together talking about it. And, and clearly then that becomes a thing that germinates on social media. And thereafter, it, it, I think VAR has benefited uh, from that, whether they take this opportunity of not having fans in the stadium or at least full stadia uh, to, to, to try and sort things out so that when the fans are back, there is less for them to complain about. The thing that's gone against VAR is that you could make the argument that even though they have made a lot of inconsequential uh, determinations over the course of the season. That one that Chinch mentioned about 
at Villa against Sheffield United, the ball that went over the line, which was a Hawkeye error, but one that VAR could have stepped in to uh, solve, that you could say relegated Bournemouth instead of Aston Villa. So it did make a huge impact potentially and we appreciate the rest of that game could have played out in a different way. But you know, that, that is a, a singular moment where technology failed the game. That pivots us nicely to, to Aston Villa and the, I, I think the correct determination that we prompted their last minute mm. survival because mm. were it not for us saying that uh, the bottom five in particular had been utterly terrible since the restart. I think Aston Villa heard that. They were motivated by that. It was put up on the dressing room wall, so to speak. And um, well done us. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? I got an angry voicemail from Dean Smith saying, shove it, Chinch, shove it. I didn't really. I'm just making that up. But yeah, they, they did. They, uh, well, they, they responded in the last two games, maybe? Four, four games. Saw... Four games. Three four, four games. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Two draws, two wins. And I know Dean is absolutely right. You know, he's delighted that they've stayed up. And he's talking about the, the big changes they made um, from how they were before March. But before March, they were absolutely appalling. He said we were defensively a lot stronger. Well, it couldn't really get any worse, Dean, to be fair. It could only get better. And it did get a little bit better. And they managed to scrape. The, the game against Arsenal, they played, played really well to give them their due. They played really well going forward defence. So they deserve to win that game. So... And I just like Aston Villa. Not that I hate Bournemouth or Watford, but I just, I like Aston Villa. And we know Dean Smith very well. So I've got a, I've maybe got a, um, a horse in the race. It just, we have had a few people on Twitter calling us out, especially Villa fans, over what we said in our, our, folk, at our pod focusing on the bottom three. And I'd just like to, uh, to Jack Spedding in particular, hold my hands up. You wanted an apology, Jack. And let me be crystal clear. You are not getting it. Villa survived with 35 <laughs> points. That is not a triumph. I'm really pleased Villa stayed up, but they stayed up in spite of them. No, no, no. I, I, I'm absolutely, I am delighted. Aston Villa is a really great place to go and it's easy to get to from Manchester. So, yeah. <laughs> well, for, for very similar reasons, I, I'm glad that Villa have stayed up as well. I think, yeah, without wanting to sort of rub salt in the wounds of Watford and Bournemouth, I think a, a, a strong-ish Villa is quite important for the Premier League. And I think with them and Leeds in the, in, in the top flight, I think it's a better place, to be perfectly honest. You know, Leeds' absence hasn't hurt the Premier League's global brand. They've managed somehow to thrive without it. But um, <laughs> the, the, I think it's, if you think about the games that that, that, that that raises, so, you know, Liverpool at Leeds, Man United at Leeds, Chelsea, Arsenal at Leeds, just as Arsenal at Villa is quite a big game, those, those matches add something to, to kind of the... the the general tapestry of, of life. But I do think that one of the things we should take away from this season is, is the growing, very quite distended gap now between, between the top and the, the bottom seven or eight in particular, where you know, 35 points should not be enough to keep you up. That is, that's the thing that, to me, with Villa, makes it less of a triumph. They should obviously be delighted they've survived. It's great, but they've got lucky. They've got lucky that, they, that three teams finished with fewer than 35 points. And... That, that is unusual. But increasingly, it's a long time now since you needed 40 points to survive. It's a long time since, since it felt as though it was only when you sort of hit 40. If you hit 42 in April, you're probably all right. Now, if you kind of get to the stage where if you're on 30 in April, you might be okay. I think the average of the last 10 seasons has been about 38. So yeah, well, you, you don't, is, is that right? Is that close to being right? On that, here is an email from Richard Parfit, which plays into exactly what Rory is saying and also statistically into what, was Chinch, uh, what Chinch was saying. And also perhaps, Stephen, this might go uh, some way to um, 
alleviating your issues with Jack's bedding. Hi all from Richard Parfit. You can file the following under Nerds with Spreadsheets. I really enjoyed the recent pod about this season's disappointing bottom five. Rick Parfit? No, Richard Parfit. Oh, different. Richard Parfit, sorry. It started me wondering if A, the widely held belief that teams fighting relegation often played better was true, and B, if this year's batch was really a lot worse. To put it another way, is this bottom five the GOAT of bad bottom fives. I started looking at league tables and then got thoroughly carried away. I feel shamefully nerdy, but I'm hoping that's something your listeners will admire rather than mock. I should also say I started this before the episode saying that records are a needless distraction. <laughs> I fully accept that this is a comparison lacking in relevant context. What I've done is to look at the teams that were in the bottom five after game week 30 this season compared to the previous 10 Premier League seasons. I compared how many points those teams compiled, where they finished, and where they placed in a form league based on the final eight weeks alone. Here is a summary, and we're just getting a quick summary, don't worry, of what I found. The teams in the bottom five after week 30 do massively outperform their form for the rest of the season. On average, their place in the eight-week form league was five places higher than their position after 30 weeks. The standout year was 2014-15, which is the year of Leicester's great escape. Mm. They helped to skew those statistics. On average, the team in 17th after week 30 outperforms their league position the most in those eight weeks. The team starting ninth have underperformed the most, quintessential not have anything to play for. This year's bottom five teams have accrued the second fewest points of any bottom five in the final eight weeks over the last decade. It was heading for the fewest, but um, I think Mikel Antonio has basically sorted out the fact that it wasn't. The worst was the 09-10 season, so this is the worst for 10 years. This is the first time since 2010 that no team in the bottom five after game week 30 has made it out of the bottom five by the end of the season and combined this year's bottom five have been worse than average on every measure I could come up with. To answer my own question, teams facing relegation do usually pick up their form, which means I've basically wasted your time confirming what we already knew. Keep up the good work as always. That's from Richard. So statistically, um, you are all right in what you said. But the difficulty is that you can't, because of the unusual circumstances, you can't say for certain whether that's because these five teams are worse than the bottom five from previous seasons although I think it's possible that they are um or whether it's that because there were no fans in the stadium that the that things things that usually happen didn't happen and that that is the one thing that I think this season will be will be remembered for is this weird kind of petri dish effect this sort of mass mass sample of how fans affect football matches that we've had for for 10 weeks across Europe really that that the, the, certainly the made the four major leagues where you've seen in Germany home advantage basically disappear you've seen the number of yellow cards go down in the Premier League and I think the number of yellow cards given to given to away teams reduce massively it seems that home advantage basically doesn't affect your opponent so much as it affects the referee and that's how it functions that's what that's the root of home advantage that it, it reminded me when you were talking about about VAR to be honest that what what having fans in the stadium does is create pressure on the people trying to officiate the game to make certain decisions in certain ways. But it and also gives rise to a body of thought as well. So whether it's positive or negative, it gives rise to a singular a kind of homogenous body of thought. And that is the same thing when you transfer it into the supporting of team or pressurizing referee. Yeah. That is, that is, that is the, the power of fans. It gives rise to something which is as one amongst some many, many thousands of people. And that, well, I think the other thing that, that's really relevant is it creates a sense of significance on relatively minor events. So I wonder if that's why, why yellow cards are down, is that 
when it, when they're sort of bad-ish tackles. Well, I was at Leicester again the other day, and Johnny Evans is red red card late on against Manchester United. Straight red card, whatever the circumstances. Not not a question. Dreadful tackle. No no malice, but really really bad. Um, that sort of decision is not dependent on fans being in the stadium. But I do think that that big roar of outrage that you get from fans for relatively innocuous challenges does skew things towards the referee thinking actually that's a more serious foul than, than than perhaps it would be if they were in this kind of control environment that we've had in the last 10 weeks which perhaps is why yellow cards have gone down all, all that talk in the Bundesliga of home advantage being eradicated when that conversation was ongoing what I thought at the time and I, and I still do now is that really rather than sort of they, and they, they might be the same thing but that rather than home advantage all you were really seeing was results that you would have anticipated you know whether that was in favour of the home or the away team that the, the stronger team, the team in the better form, was just more likely to be victorious. You weren't getting the upsets. And effectively, generally, upsets were the smaller teams being inspired in some way. And if that was by a home crowd or whether that was by the circumstances they were playing, you just weren't getting that anymore. It didn't necessarily feel, feel like a home or away thing. I think there are two statistics that um, were, were pretty much exactly the same. BBC Sport did a, did a rundown um, post the end of the season. I think goals per game were the same post-lockdown to pre-lockdown and away wins were the same statistically post-lockdown and pre-lockdown. So that's just the snapshot uh, from the Premier League. Let's, let's move on. Having talked about relegation and how we basically inspired Villa to safety, is there anything else that... that emanated from lockdown or post-lockdown or anything over the course of the season that you want to get off your chest. And Chinch, you have a mighty strong chest. What will your pectorals <laughs> offer? Uh, drinks breaks, absolute nonsense. Five substitutions. We're keeping five substitutions next season. Why? Stephen, over to you. I know you're not happy about this. Have the, the Premier League are yet to decide which way they're going to go on that, aren't they? But IFAB have ruled that we can still have five substitutions next season. Why? It's absurd. It's complete nonsense. It, it so skews in favour of the teams who already have the benefit of the most money and the deepest squads. I, just, I don't actually see collectively how the Premier League are going to vote for it. That would, that, that's Turkey's voting for Christmas stuff. Why you, would, why you would effectively say, we want Manchester City or Chelsea to have an even greater advantage when they play as next season than they would do already. I don't know. So if, if, what about if you were to say the top six, how they ended last season, can only make three substitutions. The rest of the league can make five if they wanted to do. Would, would that balance things out in your eyes at all? That's, a, not that's, really? an, that's an excellent idea. Is that's it? a really good idea. And yeah. that's the I came 14. Up with that. I came that's, up, my, my brain came up with that. You need 14 to say yes, and that would exactly be the 14 who would say, yeah. say yes. That. My, my idea is just to, to, to split the difference. Have eight substitutes on the bench and be able to make four. There we go. Everybody's it's a compromise. You're slightly inflating the issue. But if you're trying so to... You've got more choice, to, but also uh, you are not over, overly uh, weighting it in terms of the abilities of those who have more money. But as Rory was saying about the strength of the top half, of the, oh, look at the bottom five and the, the problems, the, the disparity in the league. If you're looking at ways to try and... Or should you look at ways to try and handicap the top sides to give it more of a competitive feel? Or... Should the best sides run away with it season after season after season? Well, if you, if you look at the way the season's gone, that we had this, this elongated but quite interesting season where, where Leicester were in the top four, where Wolves were pushing for it, where Sheffield United would have got into Europe, where Arsenal and Spurs and, to an, and United to an extent for a while were in crisis and Chelsea were up and down. And at the end of it, the four richest teams are finished in the top four. 
that's and then even Spurs, who who kind of came good in the end. And I think I think that that the collapse of Spurs is what is one of the most significant parts of the season. That it because because it's it kind of been played out over such a long period, you kind of lose focus on it. But Spurs, this you know last year were European Cup finalists. They had one of the most coveted managers in Europe, and they collapsed completely in the Premier League. Uh, and recovered really well under Mourinho, to be fair, to finish sixth. But I think for all the talk of kind of credit for Solskjaer and, and, Lomp- and Lampard, both of whom deserve credit for riding out their particular circumstances and making the most of their situations, they've done really well. If Spurs had not collapsed, if Spurs had performed anywhere close to par, one of those two teams would not be in the Champions League. And so sp- the, the defining event in terms of the top four is Spurs' is Spurs's collapse, not not Lampard being a genius or Sosha being a genius, um, although both of those things might yet prove to be true. But I think if you look at, at the way the league has gone, even in the circumstances of the pandemic, even in the circumstances of the elongated season, even given that, that uh, in January and February, we look like we might have a real kind of sense of change in the Premier League, the four richest finishing the top four spots, that does suggest you need to find a way to handicap things in some way. Rory's absolutely spot on with another takeaway that we can have from this season is that when teams reach the zenith if it was Champions League final for Tottenham or for Manchester City winning back-to-back titles it's so difficult for them to go again it just it seems to be the trigger for a drop-off Manchester City finished with 17 points fewer this season than they did last season and I think that would have been a really big story a really big talking point if it wasn't for how monumental it was that Liverpool won the title for the first time in in three decades. I think under other circumstances, a different champion, there would have been an awful lot of scrutiny into just how Manchester City were unable to go again. And perhaps, as as Rory was alluding to, you know, there would have been even more scrutiny than there was because there's been a fair amount on on just how far Tottenham stumbled. Oh, if, if Chelsea had won the league and City had lost nine games... City would be getting slaughtered. And City have got this very, very strange persecution complex around the way they're covered that, that is just sort of, is now a kind of gathering snowball of, of, of sort of bitterness and complaint. And I, I, I personally find it quite undignified. Um, but th- they were lucky last year that Liverpool pushed them so close because if they hadn't, I think we'd have had very serious conversations about the competitive balance in the league and whether, and I think there would have been a, a greater groundswell of support for the idea that maybe clubs that are run by countries needed to be limited in some way. But because Liverpool got close to them last year, it made it, it created the impression that you could match them. This year, they've obviously not got lucky that Liverpool have won the league. The City would rather win the league. But they're lucky that, it, that the story has been Liverpool winning their first title for 30 years and not, oh, it's another one for Chelsea. Uh, what exactly has happened to Manchester City. They've been able to kind of go in Liverpool's shadow a little bit and that's, that's helped them. But th- I think one of the things we will, we will discuss, we would have discussed more than we have this season because of totally understandable circumstances, is quite how bad this has been from City. They've lost nine games, most of them to teams around them, with one of the most expensive squads ever established and the best manager in the world. That, that is not good. That, this has not been... They, they can rescue the season by winning the Champions League and that would be fantastic if they win the Champions League, be, make it arguably their greatest season. But their, their form in the Premier League, it would, if they'd lost the title to Liverpool and got 90 points and Liverpool had just been kind of relentless and unstoppable, all, all that stuff, that would have been fine. That happens. It's, it's understandable. For, for a team of City's ambition and their level to to lose nine games is 
extraordinary, really. Well, City, City have clearly had their problems, but I just wondered, again, talk about handicapping. The, the to- ultimately, the, top, the, the richest sides have finished in the top four. Should we be looking at ways in-game to handicap those regularly successful sides with the best squads, with the most money? Is, is it fair? We've never done it before. Again, looking at substitutions maybe as an idea in, in a way of making it harder for them. Is it, is it fair or is it right to actually do that, to give the teams, the rest of the league, uh, more of a chance in-game to compete? Or it, the lay of the land is how it is. If you've got money, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. I, I don't think you can be looking to handicap teams, but you certainly, just coming back to the five substitute things, shouldn't be finding unnecessarily, unnecessary ways to strengthen them further because there are all sorts of implications. It's not just them being able to use more of their ex- expensively assembled bench. It's the fact that they will be able to retain players on their staff who might otherwise have gone out on loan or have been sold to other clubs and it would have strengthened those other clubs. Now the motivation for the clubs to release them or the same motivation for those players to look for regular first-team football elsewhere because if you're going to have five substitutions, then, then clubs are going to be able to make certain guarantees to slightly disgruntled players that they will see plenty of playing time. Yeah, and I only thought, again, the five substitutes was brought in because of what we've been through, because of fitness concerns. So now that should, by the start of next season, that should all have gone. So why would you keep that in place, which again, hands more, even more power to the top sides with the biggest squads? It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, the suggestion is, is that it won't have gone because there's no pre-season, no traditional pre-season. They haven't got the, the, the time and the, the ability to build up their, their, their kind of their long-term fitness in the same way. But, the, the... but you can't leave it in for the full season then, can you? you surely there's got to be a point where you say, come start of October, everybody fitness level, okay, quality-wise is different and depth of squad is different. But the fitness of your players, you can't say... It is an unfair, again, I think it's just handing more power to the top teams. The, the Manchester City point is, is an interesting one because, yes, they have lost nine games. And if you look at the way that they conceded the goals in most of those defeats, they are catastrophic individual errors, the likes of which you would not legislate for necessarily happening that often. You would have them uh, happening in, in isolation. But for them to happen so regularly is a problem. Even against Norwich on the final day of the season, um, they conceded a goal which was ruled out uh, by VAR, but they also, um, Timo Puki was was through and he had his efforts saved because for some reason he's just completely gone off the boil after scoring a lot of goals at the beginning of the season, including the winner against Manchester City in that game that they won. Um, so there is, a re- there is a real issue for Manchester City in sorting that out. But in terms of their attacking play, they still scored more than 100 goals in the Premier League. So that, that at least is a consistency. And in terms of handicapping sides, Steve's just explained that there is a natural handicap that time provides us with. It's incredibly difficult to maintain the kind of dominance that even we might have expected from Manchester City. They did it for two years, but the third year, this significant precipitous drop-off has occurred Yes, because of those individual errors, but just, just the natural course of time and the, and the motivations of others and all these things that, that are kind of go into the melting pot of deciding who wins the Premier League. That, that, that is the natural handicapping, it would seem. that there, there seems to be enough in place, even though we get to a point and we predict what might happen in the future and we consider the extremes of those circumstances that are provided that t- at that time. But it seems to me that there is this natural ebb and flow that means that there, there needs to be no handicapping because whether it's Nicolas Otamendi not being able to tackle or alternatively just teams being better and then not as good, that is the natural handicapping of the Premier League. Yes, yeah, that's probably right. But the problem, I guess, is that, that the drop-off now for those teams 
or the rather the, rather than the drop off, the heights that they reach are so high. The 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 strength that they are able to gather because of their financial and economic advantage is such that even when they drop off, they still finish second. And that that's a problem. I think if you look across Europe, Juve have won another title, PSG have won another title, Bayern have won another title. There's a bit of change in Spain. I think this is only Real's third in a decade, which is which is uh, a little bit more realistic. Obviously, one 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 of the other ones went to Atletico. All the others have gone to Barcelona, um, and it's yet another year in which we've seen records tumble really, really frequently in the Premier League. So Liverpool, and that's now the second best season any English team's ever had, numerically. Um, the top four are all from the last two years, which is ridiculous. Uh, Chelsea ran away with the title whenever they won it four years ago. Um, they they set the, the record for unbeaten for consecutive wins, uh, which City then broke and then Liverpool then matched. Um, it does suggest that the that the the top of the game is in England in a different. It's it's manifesting differently to the way it manifests in, in different countries across Europe, but the, that top four to six is now so strong. It is a is such a sort of supercell that it, it feeds itself. And that, that I think is, it's not something we've learned this year, but it's, it's problematic. And although there's a, bit of, um, there's a bit of unpredictability written into it because there are a number of teams within that and they will ebb and flow, it will always be them. And that's, that's not ideal. Yeah, the, the natural ebb and flow and the handicapping is within a very small yeah. cartel. You're right, Chinch. Because, well, yeah, City lost nine games, but finished 15 points clear of third place. Yeah. So yes, of course, there is a handicap. It handicapped them in terms of winning the title but it's certainly not going to handicap them finishing in the top two. I know that's not good enough for City. They want to be winning the title. But how many seasons is, is that going to happen where they will learn the lessons, they will sign better players, they won't concede as many? I, I totally agree. The top two, and then you've got maybe four or five clubs there, Leicester, Wolves, trying to get into the mix, and then the rest of the league. And that is the worry to me. Is, no, we're not, we can't talk about a top six in, in any kind of comparison because if second place is 15 points clear, of third place. I don't, I don't think that is actually an anomaly for this season. I think that is the distance between Man City and, say, Man United or the rest, and also how good Liverpool and City are compared to the rest of the top six. They're not a top six. They're a top two, and then four more teams which could change over time. Final point I want, I want to make um, is trying to draw these points together under our banner of complaining about tribalism, which is uh, something that we do regularly. So no hot takes and takeaway episode would be complete without us at least make, making reference to it. This was a season where if you think about the key elements of it, VAR, the coronavirus lockdown and therefore the solutions being offered during that time of lockdown for a restart, the FFP debates around Manchester City, and indeed the um, most recent, if you like, consideration of the player awards and how that is being now fought with such incredibly firmly drawn battle lines. There is no point it would be, uh, it would seem, this is, this is essentially the whole principle of fake news, but, you know, or being accused of being fake news. You cannot make a point to anybody who is on either side of that tribalism debate without being accused yourself of being on the other side. And in addition to that, you cannot make a point outside of the tribalism debate, which isn't prompted by self-interest. I think that's, yeah, that's right. But it's also true beyond football, isn't it? That it, There is an assumption of, of bias and prejudice and agenda in everything anyone says all of the time. And its most serious manifestation is not in football. It's, so, it's most serious manifestation is, is in politics and society. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's been quite a toxic season from that point of view, but it's, 
it, it's just a continuation of a pattern, isn't it? it it's, not, it's not something new. Until it changes in society, we're not going to see it change in football. The Jordan Henderson Award, the Football Writers Award, was a good most recent case in point for everybody who, who thought that someone else other than him deserved it. Those who thought it was a good decision have got hundreds, thousands of voices around them agreeing. So they're not going to be persuaded one way or, or the other. And I think maybe a good way for football to get away from tribalism would be to start thinking a little bit more differently about how we distribute individual awards and look at achievements beyond what the, the top clubs have done. Liverpool's reward and award for this season, for their endeavour, for their remarkable endeavour, was to be presented with the Premier League trophy on the, on the cop. I don't personally believe that Jordan Henderson was the best footballer of the year, although I understand the reason that so many people voted for him. And I certainly don't think Jurgen Klopp was the manager of the year because his team only got two more points than they did last season. I would argue that Chris Wilder finishing in the top half of the table with Sheffield United, or perhaps even more so, Nuno Espirito Santo, whose team's season is going to run into a 13th month, has already played nearly 60 games, has used the fewest number of players in the Premier League, despite the fact that his side has been competing in the Europa League since July, is the outstanding manager of the season to, to bring all of that together and still finish in the same position as they did a year ago, despite playing the extra games, despite playing for considerably longer than they did last season, is overwhelmingly the most brilliant piece of management in the Premier League this season. And he would certainly have got my vote for that award. But I mean, I, I, I would, have got, would have gone wilder for manager of, the, manager of the year. I agree with Steve completely. Liverpool have their prize. Their prize is the Premier League trophy. And I also think that in terms of individual players... Liverpool's Liverpool suffered this year, suffered this year from what Manchester City had the last couple of years. And City again, I don't, don't want to banner about City, but City have this persecution complex where they think that the Guardiola came out and said it, and you know the the Player of the Year awards are are for Liverpool players, which I think is actually a bordering on a slightly, it's not unprofessional, but it's definitely undignified thing to say. Last year with City, the problem, or certainly two years ago with City, the problem was that it was hard to pick which City player was the most important because you had De Bruyne, you had Aguero, you had Silva, you had Company. Where do you put your vote? Certainly in 2017-18, Salah's season on an individual level was so fantastic that it was easy to see why he was given that award because he had this extraordinary season that, tra- that effectively kind of kick-started Liverpool's transformation into, into a genuine force. Last season, it went to Van Dijk. Is the key signing central defender of the team that ends up as European champions and gets within one point of the title, is it that surprising that they might win the player of the year? Not really. And it's the same this year. So I I wouldn't have voted Henderson either. I'm not a member of the FWA. I would have said De Bruyne has been the, the outstanding individual, which is what I think that award should be for. But the fact that it can be so controversial that the captain of the league champions wins an award... I find astonishing. So like, I wouldn't have given it to given manager of the year to Nuno, but Steve's now explained that and it's perfectly, perfectly logical. And if he, if, if he had won it and someone had said to me, well, what about this, this and this, as Steve just has very eloquently, I'd have been like, well, all right, fair enough. Yeah, that's not necessarily what I'd have said. I'd have gone wilder, but that is completely legit- legitimate. And what I find really bizarre, again, not just in football, is that the, none of these positions are kind of indefensible. It's not indefensible that Jordan Henderson won Footballer of the Year. It's not indefensible that, that, that it wouldn't have been indefensible if Mane had won it or Alexander-Arnold or Van Dijk or De Bruyne or whoever you want to say. If you did even it to Bjorn Engels, the Aston Villa centre-half, 
then then I, then you might be able to say, look, th- th- this this award has let itself down. This has not been a fair vote. Why's Engels got it? But as long as as surely as long as the person who wins it, any of these individual awards, is in the conversation. You expect it from fans to an extent, a certain type of fan particularly, but surely the clubs and the officials and the managers and the players should be kind of, they should have the grace to think, do you know what, you can make that case, I understand that case. These are all intelligent, Pep Guardiola is an intelligent person. If, if Fernandinho had won it last year, say, would, would he have been complaining that Fernandinho had won mm. it? No, does he have said, well, actually, this is, a, this is a guy who's a really important part of my team. And I find the, that kind of willing suspension of your own intellectual capacities quite disappointing. Uh, the difficulty is, is that Raheem Sterling won the uh, Football Writers Association Player of the Year last year. And yep. uh, you could make the argument that these are writers, they're driven by stories, by narratives, and it was a narrative of Raheem Sterling's off-the-field actions that helped propel him to that award and very much the same thing with the leadership of Jordan Henderson shown on, on and off the field that has propelled those who write stories and consider a footballer not only in terms of what they do on the field but also off the field that might prompt them to vote for somebody like Jordan Henderson that the, the inconsistencies of this will be played out on either side that's fine but my, my my real issue is is that you cannot make a point from outside of being on either one of those two sides without being accused of being on either one of those two sides and I appreciate that as a societal issue but I just wanted to make the point that particularly this season that seems to have been played out with things that affect not just what happens on the pitch but those football adjacent issues that we've spoken about Uh, thank you Marina Hyde once again for that and with that we draw a line under the Premier League season 1920 all 353 days of it oh no hang on hang on we should not quite be so hasty with ruler and pen because we all know that until the story of the SPM PLPL has been fully told and the winner pronounced we the world simply cannot move on the set piece menu Premier League predictions league is uppermost in pretty much everybody's mind throughout the season even though thanks to its unique nature and our desire to do very little work ourselves you don't actually have to do anything with it throughout the season each season we ask you to predict how the final Premier League table will look And all I can say is thank God for the restart because that was one competition that nobody wanted to be left unresolved. Points are awarded for how close you are with your pick with bonus points available for the correct top four and bottom three and a wild card about which the less said the better. Well, we now know the final table and ergo, we can announce the winner. I say announce, all the information is freely available via tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu. So there'll be many who already know who's won and their own finishing position. But for those who haven't, congratulations to this year's winner, Will Frampton. And Zoom attempts to deal with three people politely applauding. Will Frampton's team was called Keller's WFA, and it is the champion courtesy of one more exact correct prediction than the person in second place. Both finished with 365 points, but Will's tie-breaking team, would you believe, was Aston Villa, who in finishing 17th gave Will the victory over Dan Mason's Whitehaven Wanderers. Will, your prize is being carefully curated as we speak. It will be money can't buy, as we have no intention of spending any money on this at all. Uh, we should say, to be thorough, the top three was completed by Stauer Niederest from Gareth Smedley, which is an excellent team name. The player with the most spot-on predictions in the overall competition, slightly less uh, inspiring uh, team name. It was just a question mark. The entrant is only known as Manuel. 
Um, so I don't know how real any of that is, but congratulations. Was he from Barcelona? Exactly. And the question mark does suggest K. Uh, Manuel finished uh, seventh overall and got seven teams in the right position. Well done to you, Manuel. The average 11 of all the players' predictions, by the way, was a lowly 486. Uh, with no bang-on positions whatsoever. So we're all rubbish on average at the very least. And nobody exactly predicted the teams and order of the top four and bottom three. But I know you all think that this is the most important section. As far as the SPM teams are concerned, the four of us had varying successes in that Rory and I had no successes whatsoever. Rory finished in 399th place. Of how many? 600. Mm. That's disappointing. Not gonna lie to you. That's disappointing. It's kind of like my career, that Rory. So it's not. It's not. It's not all bad. Bot- bottom third, Chinch. That's what you always were. Ruined yeah. by Rory. Your efforts were ruined by a bottom three of Burnley, Newcastle, and Sheffield United. That's awful. Fool of a man. I came in at three hundred and thirty ninth, mainly because two of those same three teams were in my relegation zone. Stephen just missed out on the top one hundred. He was 110th, despite also having Newcastle and Sheffield United in his bottom three. While Andy Hinchcliffe came in a particularly impressive 18th position. No Good way. God. Earlier on, Hang on a minute. We've got to have a recount. That 18th? Seriously? You said earlier on that no element of your football manager stats would be 18. Well, here's a big 18 for you. Wow. 18th overall. Now, you got the bottom three right but in the wrong order. Oh, okay. You would have got bonus points if they were in the right order. And mm-hmm. if you had just swapped Aston Villa and Southampton, you would have won. I would have won? Overall. Oh, in fact, goodness. Chinch, all 17 people above you had their wild card come in for them. So if there were no bonus points at all, in other words, if we were scoring it as yes. we have done up until this season... It's like Rory said, if all the all Premier League players play with a knife in their hand, yeah. the league would look different. Yes, so you, the league would look different if the wildcards hadn't come into play. You would have also won. Oh, whose idea was the wildcard then? Bestman Billy. Stupid idea was no, that? No, no, no. Well, what, right, Chinch. Yeah. Next, next time we are all physically together... Yeah. I will hold Hugh and you can punch him repeatedly. Right. Because on the SPMPL. I don't need a reason, Steve. Just, just hold him. <laughs> I won't even need I, you to hold him, to be fair. I was the minority voice saying, no, SPMPLPL is perfect as it is. It needs no tweaks. It ah. needs no alterations. It needs no bo- bonus points. But best man Billy and Hugh said, no, we're going to make it much more complicated. And if they'd listened to me, you would have been getting this. Yeah. Look, See, next year. You, know, you know what they've done there? They've basically put a cup competition into yeah. the league process, haven't they? Which now I see how, at the beginning, I didn't care at the beginning of the season. Now I, I see how wrong it was that you can't throw an FA Cup into a Premier League season. That's in essence what you've done there. So I technically, people out there, I have won. I, I, just beating you three is, that's incredible enough. But to, to finish in 18, but really... It's like the handball. It's like the Lucas Moura handball. It's unjust. It's unfair. So is this. Me finishing 18th when I should be number one. It's grossly unfair. I'm going to take it up with IFAB. <laughs> and everybody, considering that rant, understands exactly why everybody's happy that Chinch didn't. SPMPLPL <laughs> uh, will return in about six weeks' time. Chinch, should we keep the wildcard feature? Oh, Leeds and Westbrook. No, no, no. No, keep it in. No, no, that's nonsense. As Rory said, it's a league, it's a league competition. Let's stick to that. But Leeds, West Brom in the mix, maybe Fulham, Brentford. 
That's going to be tricky next season. Don't put Leeds in your bottom three, Rory, by the way. That wasn't going happen. to. Uh, you were, though, weren't you? No. You were. I was just thinking I am almost certainly going to put West Brom 18th, <laughs> which is West Brom's <laughs> traditional position in the Premier League. Uh, many thanks, as ever, to Best Man Billy for all his hard work on the SPM PLPL and working out how to implement the wildcard feature, which is clearly something that has um, not impressed Stephen, at the very least. Um, I, by the way, have had the fortune to see the spreadsheet on which Billy creates this magic. It is a thing of beauty. It is incredible. I do believe we have listeners who appreciate a good spreadsheet, so that's for them, if nobody else. There is a little link, by the way, on the uh, main SPM PLPL homepage to buy Billy a beer or a coffee. Uh, I know we have all done that. If you would like to do that too, please do so. Head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu to not only spare a pound or two if you would uh, be able to do that, but also to see where you finished uh, as well in this year's competition. So Hugh, how are you going to tweak this now? To Clearly you want yourself or Billy to, to win this. So, so how are you going to tweak it what, what are you going to add to the competition next season to try and give yourselves a better opportunity of winning it? As long as it undermines you, Chinch, that's all that matters. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy and Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Do you all feel lesser men knowing that I've romped in at 18th? You almost feel... I'm, on the pod, I'm you, delighted you, for you. Clearly, no, no, you're not. I can see that you're not. I am. You were... Put those fingers down. Um, the thing is, clearly, I, I don't know as much about football, and I love listening to all the all the all the fancy talk that you come out with. But when it came to the crunch, putting teams in a league position, putting teams writing down where they're going to finish, Chinch storms into the top twenty. <laughs> you should be really, with all your football knowledge and all the fancy words that you come out with. I think you should be ashamed of yourself. I think shame, shame is the word that I would use. Chinch would win in it. Got to beat me. You've got to beat me. Come on, you know you should. Would winning it have outstripped winning the FA Cup? Uh, probably, well, maybe. Would it have I been a book of Community Shield? Yeah, it sits between the two. Not the Community <laughs> Shield, no, but I, I do like to, to shove it in your faces when I possibly can. And with words, I can't do that because you are cleverer people than I am. But when it comes to writing down teams in a list from <laughs> 1 to 20, that's when I come into my own. And I basically, I don't have, I'm not sure I did any work for it. I might have just have guessed. No, I didn't. I put a lot of work into it. This Avoid. is unbelievable levels of gloating. Chinch is going to be oh, going it's, just not, it's never going to happen again, Steve. So I'll tell you what, Steve, though. Now. I've got to get my gloating in early. Don't you think it says a lot about Chinch's career? It explains a lot that he is gloating about coming 18th and something. He'll be going on an open window tour around <laughs> Woodford in his Fiat Tipo, waving his top of fire out of the window. <laughs>